Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right. We are going to get started here. So we've been in the the book of Zechariah for some time, and we took three weeks on chapter one. We took one week on chapter two, and we're going to take one week today on chapter three. So we're we're making good progress. Maybe we can get through this in less than a year. We'll see. But chapter three is amazing, so I'm really excited to get into this and study Jesus as the branch, and what a unique, awesome name of our Lord and Messiah that God uses here. So let's open up in a word of prayer and we will we'll jump right in. Lord, we just thank you so much again for this time together. God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of your word. Lord, we thank you so much that there are so many prophecies in the Old Testament speaking of our Messiah. And God, as we study Zechariah 3, we pray that you would give us a complete understanding of everything you would have of us out of this chapter And Lord, as we surround ourselves with the word of God, Lord, we pray that you'd give us discernment as we leave this place on how to better serve you. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, well, there's a lot to to gather out of Zechariah chapter three, so... We definitely want to lean on the Holy Spirit to teach us everything out of this book and out of this chapter, as always. And, you know, I always have to also just encourage you all. I know you're probably tired of me saying it, but when you open up the Bible in your own time every day, be sure to petition the Holy Spirit to teach you everything out of the book from 1 John 2.27. Let that anointing teach you and show you everything that God would have for you out of his word so that you can have confidence. You can have confidence in your life to stand. And so on our timeline here, you break up the Old Testament in these, in these different ages or eras of time. And on the bottom, it shows when various books of the Old Testament were written, when the Lord wrote those throughout time from creation all the way to the exile. And Zechariah is a contemporary of Malachi and Haggai. He's a post-exile prophet all the way at the right end of this chart. So they were in the Babylonian captivity. They received financial incentives from Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple. A very small select number of Jews actually took Cyrus up on that offer and they go back. Well, they don't get very far because the wall's not built. They're being attacked by enemies. That's when Nehemiah comes in and comes down to rebuild the wall. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple. Haggai is raised up to encourage God's people to press on and finish rebuilding the temple. They pause for about 16 years. And a few months after Haggai, Zechariah is raised up to encourage the people to press on to spiritual maturity so that they can finish the temple and restore their land as God intended. Now, 
just as a note too, after that, remember the silent years, the last 430 years or so before Jesus walks the earth are covered in detail in Daniel 11. And so whenever you hear scholars or Bible teachers talk about the silent years, they're not really silent. They're covered in, in a lot of detail in Daniel 11, that entire chapter. So just keep that in mind. Zechariah, if you remember, it's probably the most messianic book of the entire Old Testament. It introduces Jesus as the branch, and we're going to study that today here in chapter 3. But the stone with seven eyes is linked to Revelation. That's here in chapter 3 today. It speaks of his throne, his dominion, Jesus the Nazarene. That's also here in chapter 3. The king riding on a donkey in chapter 9. So remember from Daniel 9, the Lord told the Jews to the day of of when their king would show up. Zechariah 9 verse 9 shows them what to look for. How do they know that that's their king? And so that's pretty fascinating when you put those two together. He's the shepherd. His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and what the, the betrayers did with the money is here in Zechariah. Him being pierced or crucified is in details prophecy, prophesied here in Zechariah. His return in power in Zechariah 14 is here when he steps foot on the Mount of Olives and literally the mountain will cleave as he destroys his enemies with his word from Revelation 19. So our outline, we've gone through Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. In Zechariah 1, 7 started these 10 visions that God gave him in one night. And you can classify them to be only eight. Some, some people do that. I have them listed out here as 10 just so you can see them all. So we looked at the riders under the myrtle trees in chapter 1, 7 through 17. The four horns and the four carpenters last time, or two weeks ago, I should say, in chapter 1, 18 through 19 and 20 through 21. The man with the measuring line was in chapter 2. And now we're going to get into chapter 3 where you have Joshua and Satan and the branch and Yehoshua. Pretty amazing. And then the the visions in in chapter 6. And then the Lord has some messages there. Okay, here in chapter 3, the Lord's going to give Zechariah a vision that includes Joshua the high priest. Now, keep in mind, I know a lot of you probably know this, but this is not the same Joshua that led them out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan. This is Joshua the high priest who was a contemporary with Zerubbabel, the governor, as they came back to rebuild the temple. He served as the high priest in around the 5th century BC or so, and he'd been serving as the high priest for about 16 years at this time. So that's all from Ezra chapter 4. And in this vision, Joshua is going to represent someone else. Now, Joshua in Hebrew means his name is Yehoshua, and his name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is deliverance. In Greek, the name Joshua becomes Jesus. And it's amazing that we have a book in the Old Testament written that has the name of our Savior on it, Joshua, the book of Joshua. And the whole book of Joshua is a link to Revelation. It's a foreshadowing to Revelation where, if you remember, Joshua leads the children back in the land and he dispossesses the land of the usurpers and there are signs in the sun and the moon and stars, cosmic disturbances, the sun stands still for a while, Uh, the, the kings of the earth actually hide in caves and dens crying out for the rocks to fall on them. The whole thing is a model of the book of Revelation, where Jesus himself comes back to dispossess dispossess the land of the Antichrist 
and the satanic army. So it's amazing. You can study the whole book of Joshua as a link to Revelation. It's very, it's very analogous. Okay, this vision is going to deal with the transformation of Israel from being a self-righteous people to looking toward God's righteousness. And you're going to find in this vision that somebody gives Joshua a change of garments, which is going to be very prophetic for us. The prophetic aspects of this vision, they were not fulfilled in the days of Zechariah. So God's going to look far beyond Israel's restoration in the land after the exile, and he's going to look all the way to the millennium after the church is closed and we go home. And he's giving the nation a glimpse of what's to come for them in the future. So this is to be encouraging for them that, hey, the Lord has not forsaken us. And remember, even in the genealogies of Zechariah's name, remember he's the son of Berkiah, who is the son of Edu. And their names from Edu, Berkiah, and Zechariah mean at the appointed time, Yahweh blesses whom Yahweh remembers. And so this is to be a lot of encouragement for them. And this chapter has got four major sections. And each one's going to portray our Lord Jesus as our high priest interceding for us just like we studied in Hebrews, and Jesus intervening for us as our intercessor. And it should be encouragement to you to know that every day you have the God of the universe, Jesus, praying and interceding on your behalf. He stands in heaven, and while the accuser of the brethren, Satan, is railing accusations about you and trying to take you out, Jesus is right there in between. And he's your intercessor. It's amazing. He plays that role of a high priest just beautifully. Okay, in verse one here to start out. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So notice that God's connecting all of the visions we looked at in the past with the opening word and. Okay, so this is one way we know these all happened in one night. And there's, it's also dated later, but it's actually a Hebrew connective in the original text, this word and. So he's linking all of the visions so far to this one. Satan is standing to resist the high priest. So Joshua the high priest, and Satan is standing there to resist him. The word here to resist him is actually Satan. It's Satan, Satan in the Hebrew it means to be or act as an adversary, resist or oppose. And so notice, you know, before Satan fell, his name was Lucifer. His name after he fell became Satan or Satan, the adversary who opposes you and I. He opposes the Most High. And remember, Satan's war is against the Word of God. You and I just happen to be collateral damage in between that war. We're right in the middle. And so he wants to take us out because we are heirs with Jesus, according to his word, and he can't take our salvation, but he can make us unproductive for the kingdom. That's his goal. So remember, he's an accuser of the brethren from Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accuses them before our God day and night. So Jesus, at some point during the tribulation, casts Satan out where he has no access to heaven any longer. 
He's cast down to the earth. He's restrained to the earth. And he knows he has but a little time. And he, that's, that's when the worst time of all human history is unleashed on the earth. Okay, now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 1, verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. This is the angel actually speaking to Mary, I mean. She'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Satan does not want salvation for our sins. He wants to resist that from occurring. Jesus' role as our high priest is to intercede and save us for our sins as a, as a high priest intercessor between us and the Father. Now, Joshua, the high priest in this vision, is representing our high priest. Okay, so just keep that in mind, standing in the place of his people. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Okay, and the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now, when you're in spiritual warfare, there's a principle here, a position that you have to take, and that is that the Lord rebukes Satan. Okay, and that's from Jude 1.9. It's from here in Zechariah 3.2. It's all over the Bible. Remember in Jude 1 verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he, he disputed about the body of Moses. Now, when you read that in Jude, you don't find that anywhere in the Old Testament, and you immediately go, what in the world does Satan want with the body of Moses, first of all? That's, that's a little bit of a mystery. I'm, I happen to have the opinion that I think it's because Moses has a future where his ministry is not complete. Remember, he never entered the promised land, and he has a role as one of the two witnesses in Revelation, uh, he and Elijah. That's why they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Malachi prophesies that Elijah will come before that great and dreadful day. Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration from Peter about his second coming and what he's going to do. And when you study those two witnesses and you line up everything that they have, all the powers endowed on them from the Lord, they just line up perfectly with what Moses did and Elijah did. So it's just a hint. You know, it's not something to, a hill to die on necessarily, but something worth considering. But look what happens. So Michael's battling Satan over the body of Moses. And Michael does not even bring against Satan a railing accusation. But instead, he said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, this is a, it's a, you could study this in depth for a long time about how you behave in spiritual warfare and what you use your tongue for. There's a lot of, there's life and death in the power of the tongue. Remember from James? And so you have a responsibility with your tongue, even when evil dignitaries are doing things that are wrong, you do not bring a railing accusation against them. You pray for them and you declare the Lord rebuke you. Let the Lord fight that battle. From Romans 12, nine, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Okay, notice in verse two here though, that the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee. So even in that, there are two members of the Trinity right here in verse two. The Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. And this is, this is from Psalms 110 verse one. You see this also. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So you, you are getting a glimpse of a conversation between the Son and the Father. The Lord said unto my Lord. 
Now, Jesus actually uses this in Matthew 22. Remember in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what think ye of Christ? Now, anytime in the New Testament when Jesus asks a question and there's a lot of sarcasm behind it, you need to hold on because he, he's backing someone into a corner. And it's amazing. I love how Jesus does this. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they say unto him, the son of David. Of course, we're the Jews. He's going to be the son of David. It's been promised in 2 Samuel 7. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And he's quoting Psalms 110. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And so do you see the paradigm that he's putting, the trap he's putting them into? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And so they decided, okay, this guy's too good. We cannot try to legally trap him any longer. He knows a way out constantly. And so Jesus uses this very thing to put the Pharisees in their place. I just love that. Okay, God has always chosen Jerusalem. That's his land from verse two. Remember he says, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Jerusalem will be a brand pulled out of the fire of the tribulation. And he's going to restore Jerusalem and set up his throne there as the capital of the world. And what I want you to know is that you too are chosen and Satan hates it. You right now are the indwelling spirit of God, the vessel walking around the earth that no other people group has had that privilege since the dawn of creation. You have that privilege. You are chosen and you are grafted in to the family of Jesus. Praise God. And so you enjoy promises that no other people group has ever been able to enjoy and look forward to. You've been made a co-heir with Christ. You get to sit on his throne with him. You get to reign and rule over the nations in the millennium. You have an inheritance in heaven that no other people group has as the church. Israel's inheritance is on the earth. Your inheritance is in heaven. Now the Jews that do believe in Jesus are obviously right now a part of the church. It's not, they're not exempt from that. But once the church is removed, God then deals once again with the planet earth through Israel. And you're chosen and Satan hates it. He hates it. He wants to keep you from being unproductive for the kingdom. That's all he wants right now is to get you to back, into, back yourself into a corner and hide and wait for the rapture and then get out of here because he knows that the church is the most powerful entity ever created by Jesus. And if the church walked in its full authority in God, we would be unstoppable and the whole world would take notice of the king. And so what he wants right now is a lukewarm, ineffectual church that is surrendered to the world and living a life of sin. That's what Satan wants. And our goal and the mission statement that the Lord wrote for this church to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return is to get the church to wake up, restore the biblical literacy within the body of Christ, 
and walk in that full authority of God and to be a self-feeder of the word, right? So that you can go home and you know how to study the Bible and to live a life sanctified to him. Okay, now in verse three, Joshua was, was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Okay, the next section of this vision shows, shows Joshua in need of cleansing. So the model here is likely a reflection of what happened on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So remember on the Day of Atonement, you had the, the tabernacle and then the temple, but the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies and only on the Day of Atonement and only after a lot of cleansing and sanctification. So they would have all these rituals, they would cleanse him, they, he would change his garments, then he would go into the Holy of Holies once he's ready and make intercession for us or for God's people. The model here is for us as Jesus did on the Day of Atonement. When he went into the Holy of Holies and he put the, his blood from the cross on the mercy seat. Okay, he cleansed us then. And then the veil was torn because finally there was a sacrifice that was acceptable for all eternity to God. And so the veil was torn open house. You never have to do it again. Come one, come all. Okay, the day of atonement. So, but you and I are also in need of a change of garments. Our garments are but filthy rags, according to Isaiah. And in the Hebrew, it actually carries a deeper connotation of the, the most filthy, dirtiest rags you could imagine on earth. That's how dirty we are without Jesus, okay? And, and we need to recognize our position before God were it not for our high priest that gives us a change of garments. That's where we are. In Revelation 3, 5, remember the promise to the overcomer, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So remember, you will be clothed with a white garment given by Jesus. And even that model is of the Jewish wedding, okay? And we're gonna look at that in just a second. In verse four, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him and unto him he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Okay, this is Jesus speaking. Who's the only one who can forgive sin and give you a new change of garments? It's Jesus. Okay, and unto him he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. You do not have to live in a place of your iniquity any longer because Jesus allows it to be passed from you. You're forgiven you are not enchained to that sin any longer, and he gives you a new change of clothes, a change of garments, a change of garments that gives you authority to be welcome in the house of God. Remember what Jesus said when he took the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt, and they asked him, why did you bring us out of here? And he says, well, I couldn't dwell with you there. That's where sin is. See, when you're when you're living, even after you're born again, when you're living a life of sin, Jesus can't dwell with you there. He wants to bring you through the fire 
of refining to a place where he can, he can take you to enter into his rest. That's his goal. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So that's, that's how God views our righteousness. Our righteousness is but as a filthy rag. It's the dirtiest thing in God's eyes. We, we, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. We need Jesus and his cleansing and his garments, his change of garments, to then be acceptable for God. Okay, the first time this takes place in the Bible is with Adam and Eve. So a lot of you remember the story from Genesis 3.21. Adam and Eve fall. They recognize they're naked before God. And, and not, yes, they may have been physically naked, so to speak, because they were clothed in light, and that was taken away from them. But what they also recognize is they are naked before God. They don't have a covering to be in fellowship with him. They don't have a way to get there. And so what do they do? This is the first instance of religion in the entire Bible. They try to sew themselves a covering with their hands. Sewing a, a, a covering of fig leaves, remember? They try to clothe themselves with their own works. And God says, no, that's not how you come to me. And in verse 21, and unto Adam also unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them? So what he's teaching them is that by the shedding of innocent blood, they shall be covered. And so he goes and he kills some innocent blood, some animals, takes their skins and covers them. And it's, it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do for us, that only by the shedding of innocent blood, you and I would be covered. Okay, how do you make sure your garments are clean? Well, you have to remember this. This is a lot of people call this the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you wanna make sure you have on the proper garments. And how you do that is get to the place of your total and for, forever surrender and submission to Jesus. Because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to give you that change of garments and to wash you and to cleanse you. It doesn't mean you have to live a perfect sinless life. We are all going to mess up. We are all a work in progress, everyone in this room. But what do you do when something happens? Do you run to Jesus or do you turn away from him and double down like Solomon did? Solomon grew hardened. His heart grew resentful toward God. He multiplied wives, gold, and horses, and he wasn't supposed to. David, on the other hand, gosh, I mean, here's a guy that committed adultery and then murdered the husband of the woman he slept with. And yet God has nothing bad to say about him because he constantly turned back to God and ran to, to the Lord for forgiveness. So you want to be in a position where you are constantly running toward the Lord. And in doing so, you will live a life that is easier to not fall back into sin and temptation. 
Because what, is, what does Jesus say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So Satan roams around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whom he may is the operative term there. If you're abiding in the word of God and you're taking the spiritual warfare, the approach that Michael took and that Zacharias says here, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. And the more you resist him, he's going to eventually not have control and power and move on elsewhere. Okay, so you have to, you have to resist. Now, this wedding garment, this is interesting because in Matthew 22, we get a glimpse of a parable of the wedding. And in the Hebrew culture, the Galilean wedding is modeled after our relationship with Jesus. We've gone through that here at church a lot of times. One of the things we didn't talk about, though, is that it's the host's responsibility of the wedding to give the guests the attire. And so if you're a guest at the wedding, the host actually provides the attire for you. So you make sure you have on the proper attire to have entrance into the wedding. And going back to Revelation 3, that's what the Lord's talking about. I will give you a change of garments so that you can attend the wedding. So you see this in Matthew 22, verse 1, starting out. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. So, the model here is the father has a wedding prepared for his son. He goes out to call his servants, Israel at the time, to come to the wedding. And again, but they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come on, come into the marriage. I'm ready. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm another to his merchandise. Remember the parable of the sower and the cares of the world and money eat away the word of God and take cleansing or take root and choke away the word in their lives. Remember that? That's what's happening here. The, the Israelites are saying, no, I'm, I'm good about the wedding. I've got a farm to maintain. I've got merchandise to go and a business to run. And the world is choking the word out of their lives about what they should do. And the remnant took his servant and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. So they kill the son, okay, the servant that's delivering this message. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers. Okay, you, don't, you do not want to mess around with trying to destroy God's servants, and burned the, up their city. And that happened obviously in 70 AD when the Romans ransacked Israel, destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another as Jesus prophesied. And in 70 AD that happens and the children, the Israelites are scattered all over the earth until May 14th of 1948. So it took almost 1900 years to bring them back into the land. Okay, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore unto the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So it's go to the ends of the earth, spread the gospel, build my church, bring my people to the wedding. It's ready, as many as you can. So those servants went out into the highway and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, 
and the wedding was furnished with guests. Verse 11, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Okay, so here's a guy that's saved, he's in heaven, he sneaks into the wedding from Revelation 19, but he doesn't have on the proper attire. And the king addresses him, how'd you get in here without the right attire on? Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. Now remember, that's the area of less light. It's not Hades or hell. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this, the point of the parable for you and I is, if we surrender our lives completely to the Lord, you are invited to a wedding. The host, none other than Jesus himself, the bridegroom, is going to give you the proper attire and you get to be in that wedding. That's the key. And that's where we all want to get to in our lives is to be unashamed of our commitment to Jesus and get ready for the wedding. I mean, you have the greatest event in the universe to look forward to for the church, the wedding to where you are forever endowed to Jesus for all eternity. It's incredible. It, I, I don't know how long the wedding will last because we'll be outside of time and space itself, but man, I bet it's a celebration that just lasts for eternity. And it's just gonna be a, a blip of time on the earth, but it's gonna be incredible. Okay, in verse five here, and I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord stood by. Okay, the mitre, the mitre was the headdress of the high priest. And it was inscribed with the saying, holiness to the Lord. Remember Exodus 39 verse 30? This is how, when God is, is having them make all of this attire for the high priest. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And in the Hebrew, actually, it's all capital letters. So that's why in your Bible, it's all capitalized in the English. And they tied unto it a lace of blue to fasten it high upon the mitre as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the amazing thing here is that you and I are a priesthood. I know a lot of us as the church, we don't think of ourselves as being in a priestly role, but that's exactly what God declares in 1 Peter 2, 9. But ye, the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So you, as a member of the church, you are a king and a priest before God. And you enjoy, as I mentioned, the greatest benefits of any, any entity, any body, that's ever been created by God. And Melchizedek in the Old Testament modeled that. Remember, he was a king and a priest. Jesus modeled that. He was a king and a priest. And then we model that as the church. We are kings and priests, a royal priesthood. Now, the reason why that's so important to recognize is because in Revelation, Jesus declares about the 24 elders that we have been made kings and priests to God. And so that's how you know the identity of the 24 elders. That's one of many, many ways that you know that that's the church. Okay, in Zechariah 3, verse 6 here, And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my, my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So what I want you to notice is, what is operative here for you and I? And you can find this all over the Bible. Your inheritance in heaven, your salvation is not contingent on you being the best person in the world. It's contingent on, you, on Romans 10, 9, that you've confessed Jesus, you are born again immediately, and you can never lose it. Your inheritance and what you do with that then is very much contingent on the if. If, okay? God is saying, if you do this, I will bless you immensely such that you will reign with me. You'll have a change of garments. You'll have a new name on a pillar in the new temple of God in the millennium. All of these promises throughout the Old Testament. Okay, notice that obedience is directly correlated with authority in God's kingdom. And so the more you are obedient to Christ, the more authority and inheritance and a, and a place, a deeper place of relationship you have with him. That's the key. You want to get to a place where you are so surrendered to God that you're just talking to him daily, that you're communing with him, you're fellowshipping with him. You know, and then, and then as you grow in the word and in stature and wisdom and understanding, God's going to reveal to you the call that you have on your life. We've talked a lot about here the last few weeks that every, all of us, everyone in this room, we have a unique call on our lives. God has something for you that's different than me or the person sitting next to you. You have a call. It could be something, in the world's eyes at least, very simple, but in God's kingdom, it will ripple for all eternity. So do not forsake your call. Okay, that's the, the goal. John 14, 15 if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, that's how we know if you love Jesus, right? God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? See, you, get, you will have the opportunity to judge the world. I mean, that's amazing. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? You and I get to judge angels. That's incredible. How much more things that pertain to this life. And God goes on to, to talk about how to handle things within the church. Okay, Zechariah 3.8 now. God's, this is the final section of this chapter, these last couple of verses. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And again, in the Hebrew, it's all capitalized. And so that's why in the English, it's, it's capital branch. It's all capitalized. Okay, in the, in the Hebrew, this opening sentence, here now, you could render it here if you please. It's kind of a, an operative of, of, hey, will you please listen to what I'm about to say as God's saying Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, Philippians 2, etc., all speak as Jesus, as God's servant. Okay, look at a few of these. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 49, verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant. That's Jesus speaking. To bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. In Isaiah 50, verse 10, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant? Okay, on and on. It's all over the Bible. Jesus as his servant. Jesus took on the form of a servant willingly from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Okay, the word branch here, back in verse 8, the branch, in the Hebrew, it's, it's shemek. Okay, it's a very unique phrase in the Hebrew. It means sprout, growth, branch, sprout, or shoot of Messiah from the Davidic tree. You get a glimpse of this in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Okay, so God's prophesying that. The branch is used in four different ways in the Bible. The first one is here in Zechariah 3.8, where it uses it as Jesus as the servant. Okay, it's used in Isaiah 4 verse 2 as Emmanuel, God is with us. Okay, starting in Revelation 19 as Jesus sets up the millennium. In Isaiah 4, verse 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. He's speaking about after the tribulation, Jesus sets up the millennium. The branch will be with us finally, Emmanuel. The branch as the offspring of David is used in Jeremiah 23, 5. And 33:15, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Okay, and then again in 33, verse 15, in those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. The final way God uses it is as the son of man to take back what Adam forfeited. And that's in Zechariah 6, verse 12, later on in this book. And speak unto him, saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And Jesus does build the millennial temple, and that's all drawn out at the, at the end of Ezekiel. So four ways. God uses the branch in one other way in Isaiah 11. And the, the word he uses is not shemek, or shemek it's nestir, and it's where it's the root from where the word we get Nazarene. And in the gospel, it's a play on words actually, because in the gospel of Matthew, this was a prophecy that was to be fulfilled, that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Remember in Matthew 2, verse 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, when you go in back and you study the Old Testament, Everywhere you look, you can't find the prophecy of where was Jesus going to be called a Nazarene. 
until you get into the Hebrew in Isaiah 11 verse 1, and this is where it is. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch, but it's not Shemek, it's Netzir, shall grow out of his roots. And that's a Nazarene. That's what God is saying right there. So that's where that prophecy is and the fulfillment of it in Matthew 2 verse 23. Now, it's interesting that in total, God uses the branch, uh, Shemek, like we talked about, in four different ways. And in those four different ways, this links to the four Gospels in the New Testament. Remember, Matthew presents the branch as the Messiah, and that's how God used it in Jeremiah 23, 5. He was to be the, the Messiah, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Okay, Mark presents the branch as the servant, just like here in Zechariah 3, verse 8. Remember, my servant, the branch. That's how Mark presents Jesus as his servant. All through Mark, you see Jesus serving people, washing feet. Uh, he doesn't have a genealogy in Mark because a servant doesn't have a, a pedigree necessarily of their past. Luke presents the branch as the son of man from Zechariah 6, verse 12. John presents the branch as the son of God from Isaiah 4, verse 2. So in those ways that God in the Old Testament declares him to be the branch, he's even modeling the four gospels for us. Just incredible. Okay, in verse 9 here to wrap up. For behold, the, stu- the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, the stone throughout the Bible refers to Jesus. Remember the rock that followed them in the wilderness, the stone cut without hands from Daniel 2 that destroys the beast kingdom that uh, has been trying to be set up for some years now, the stone laid in Zion, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense from Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Peter 2. He becomes the headstone of the corner from Psalms 118. Okay, in Revelation 5, 6, and behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne, so remember, we're raptured in Revelation 4, 1, we're in heaven around the throne of Jesus, and in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, the four cherubim surrounding God's throne, in the midst of the elders, us, the 24 elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. So back in Zechariah 3, verse 9 here, the stone has seven eyes. So God's linking it to Jesus in Revelation 4 and 5, who has seven horns and seven eyes, all authority and all seeing, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And those seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth are taken from Revelation 1, verse 4. Remember John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now the seven spirits are in Isaiah 11, 2. See how all this is linked, how God takes us all over the Bible? In Isaiah 11, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that's one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So you have seven right there. The spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. So you have sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in verse nine here, the engraving though, 
Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof. Engraving a precious stone was found in Isaiah 28, 16, 1 Peter 2, 6, Exodus 28, 11. It's all over, all over the Old Testament. But question, where and when was Jesus engraved? Right? On the cross. His brow, his hands, his feet, his side was pierced. And these are the divine engravings cut deeply in the precious chosen cornerstone to bring forth the beauty of a redeemed people. Because just like with the children of Israel and the high priest, when they would engrave on those stones to set in the ephod, it allowed it to to radiate colored light and to be the most radiant thing one could dress themselves with. You and I, because Jesus as our precious cornerstone was engraved for us, and we are clothed with the beauty of the Holy Spirit, the light of the world, and we get to carry that around. Now in a single day, the iniquity of the land will be taken when they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, from Zechariah 12, verse 10, because at the end of verse nine there, remember what the Lord says? And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Okay, the last verse. <clears throat> in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye carry, call, excuse me, Every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree, in verse 10, in that day. You know, the day of the Lord brings destruction for God's enemies, but peace and complete fulfillment for God's people. Now, what is this phrase, ye shall call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree? Well, this is taken from, he's referring them back to a similar time when Solomon reigned from 1 Kings 4, verse 25, and Judah and Israel together dwelt safely every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Now this occurs again in the millennium from Micah 4, verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. And now Jesus pulls reference to this in Matthew 12, verse 42. The queen of the south. Now remember when the queen of Ethiopia came to see Solomon in all of his glory? She gets saved because she's resurrected when Jesus steps foot back on the earth. And that's from Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. So she's going to judge the Israelites who killed Jesus. That's pretty amazing. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus is pointing them back to a time when he will put them back under the vine and the fig tree. Okay, now we've looked at this, the, the trinity of faith a lot in here. But the Lord showed me something this time as I was going through Leviticus I started back over a few months ago in my daily reading, and he showed me something about our call, and I've been talking about this a lot at church lately, I just thought this was really neat, so I wanted to share it. But you know, you and I, all of us, we do have a unique call on our lives, and our goal is to get totally surrendered to Jesus so that you can walk and abide in that call. Now, what was the call for the Israelites? Their call was to leave Egypt, leave a place of sin and bondage, 
be baptized through the Red Sea. Remember, they got saved by the blood of the Lamb in the Passover. Go through the Red Sea in baptism. Go through the wilderness wanderings, the wilderness of, of sin, and get to a place of rest with Jesus in the, in the Holy Land. But look what God says here a lot in Leviticus. Look at it, Leviticus 18, verse 28. That the land spew not you out also when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. One of the reasons why God removed the people that were in that land previously was their sin. And what he's telling them in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, look at 22 through 26. Ye shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments, and do them that the land, whither I bring you to, dwell therein, spew you not out. And he goes on to say this a couple times. The principle here for you and I is that when you are walking into your call, if you retreat and go back into a life of sin, your call, the place of rest with Jesus, will spew you out because it can't hold you there any longer. You can't walk and operate in that place out of rebellion to the Lord. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. They got in the land. They rebelled against the Lord. He warned them over and over, if you do this, the land's going to spew you out. Don't do this. Stay with me. Abide in me. Follow my word and my commandments and stay here. But they didn't listen. And so the land spewed them out. And I think that is fascinating and how often, you know, we think about, <clears throat> Lord, what do you have for me? You know, what's next in my life? What, what do you want me to do for your kingdom? I hope you're asking him that. Because when you open your heart up wholly to the Lord, it is radical what he will call you to do and to do in your life in a big way for the kingdom. And you have to walk and stay humble and surrender to the Lord and when you do that, the land, your calling, your place of rest will not spew you out. That doesn't mean you won't have difficulties, that you won't go through wars. I mean, they had wars all the time in the promised land. But who should be fighting those wars for your behalf? Jesus. Remember, he fought the battle at Jericho. So we've got to live a life surrendered to him, put on the proper attire and wedding garments, so that we can walk in that call completely with Jesus. He wants you to do that so desperately. Before you can do that, though, you've got to be born again. So if there's anybody here that, that needs to know the Lord, it's really simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. And if anyone is out there listening to this somewhere else, in the world and you're not saved, get on your knees before Jesus and do not take any more time because we are not promised another second. And in a second, there's gonna be a voice with a shout of a trumpet from 1 Thessalonians 4 that's gonna shake the earth, raise the dead in Christ. We're gonna get caught up and get out of here to forever be with the Lord. And we don't know when that happens. And so, but... Jesus did challenge us to know the times and the seasons of his arrival to get us. And when you're seeing everything going on in the world, you've got to know that time is at hand, that time is short. And so take it serious. We've got to get serious about our business with the Lord. 
So do that today. If you need to get born again, please do that. You can never be unborn. So Lord, we thank you so much again for this time together. God, we thank you that we get to gather right here around your word and that, Lord, you have a call on our lives. Lord, I pray that we would abide in a place of surrender and refining and sanctification with you so that the land does not spew us out, God. And we thank you for that call. We thank you for the promise that you've laid out from cover to cover of your, in your word of the victory that we have in you, Jesus. Thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for intercessing on our behalf. Thank you for rebuking Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you willingly took on the form of man to be a servant on our behalf. Jesus, I think we will spend an eternity trying to figure out what that truly cost you to leave your throne and to take every person's sin that would ever be born on that cross and to pay it in full. And Lord, we just thank you that you did it. And Jesus, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we surrender to you our lives and pray that you'd make it very clear what our call is in these days ahead for your kingdom, Lord. Give us the strength to stand in these last days and the fortitude to always surrender to you and to not retreat from the land and the call that you have on us. We thank you again for this time together. Be with us as we leave this place, Lord. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen.